From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A medical mystery, and Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel is on the case. The New York Times staff writer digs into those vape-related illnesses that have cropped up in Colorado and across the country. Then, car bombings that were never solved. 45 years ago, two explosions in Boulder killed Chicano student activists. I was shocked that this history wouldn't be reflected somehow in the city of Boulder and in CU Boulder's campus, given how essential these students were to the civil rights movement. Well, there's a new monument to them. Also, John Hickenlooper sucked all the air out of the room, so Mike Johnston has left the U.S. Senate race. What does Johnston think of the Democratic Party's calculus? Plus, Colorado cycling legend and former doper Jonathan Vodders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They arrive at the hospital gasping for breath, vomiting, a fever as high as 104. Some of these patients have been put on a ventilator to breathe. I'm talking about the mysterious lung illness linked to vaping. There are about 200 cases nationwide, at least two in Colorado, and a death in Illinois. Health officials aren't the only ones digging into this mystery. So is New York Times reporter and Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Doing well. I mean, it seems like the biggest clue here is to look at the people affected. What, what do we know about them? Well, you, you, in your opening, you got at this, um, and I will uh, put a fine point on it. Um, one thing to note is that they are young. So let's say between 18 and 40 broadly, 17 and 40. Why is that important? This is not a lung affliction that typically affects that group. So that is one very noteworthy bit of evidence. The other is, as you alluded to, um, we know that it begins with some nausea and vomiting. Uh, Maybe then it moves to some fever as high as 104. Uh, people are staying at home at this point, but then that then hits the shortness of breath so severe that people wind up in the emergency room and even ventilated. This constitutes the combination of these things, the youth and the severity constitutes a definitive syndrome. And I gather it's these clues that led doctors in disparate places across the country to start thinking, my goodness, are these related? Yeah, exactly. And just to Just to illustrate that, in neighboring Utah, um, uh, I I spoke by phone to a pulmonologist there who told me this story. She said, August 6th, I I was um, at a Salt Lake City hospital. I saw 20-something with these conditions. And after, and I had heard nothing of this. She said, after work, I mentioned it to a colleague because it was so unusual. And he said to me, you know, I heard something out of Wisconsin like that. And that very night, uh, this pulmonologist happened to be on a telemedicine shift, which is where you're dealing with um, cases around the state. And another 20-something, she consulted to another 20-something. And in the morning, the first call she made was to the head of the Department of Health of Utah and said, we got a problem. And that's the kind of disparate stuff that's beginning to be uh, stitched together by public health officials around the country. In a way, that sounds so coincidental, so happenstance. Is that yes. often, though, how medical medical mysteries are addressed? You know, what you realize when you begin to cover uh, 
uh, these industries, and then I'm I'm benefited by being married to my, uh, a doctor. My wife's a neurologist. Is that is that the these folks are tapped into a network of information in the same way that you might imagine. Um, I don't know, a meteorologist are looking at the weather all over the country, and they begin to see patterns very quickly. And so this is often how you might see a food outbreak emerge. Someone says, oh, holy cow, at this hospital, <laughs> can I do a holy cow in a food outbreak uh, metaphor? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> you know, we just saw E. coli here at this hospital, and we saw it here. Let's get the engine started. Uh, this is a very basic question, so basic it might strike some as stupid. Um, is this potentially a bacteria or a virus that could be spread? Have they ruled that out? No, it's a great question. And in fact, um, it's the very question that the doctors ask, because when I, I, I skimmed over this, but when these folks are showing up in the emergency room, the very first thing this looks like is a bacterial or viral pneumonia. Um, and maybe this is too obvious to point out, but that is a very serious disease. And the first thing that happens, or those are very serious diseases, is the people, people get tested for those and the tests come back negative. That is of note because what it tells us is that we can rule out infection and what, what is likely the happening by contrast, if you rule that out, is a big inflammatory response. That means that the immune system is responding very aggressively Mm. to something it is coming across and essentially flooding the lungs such that you could strangle. And there is talk that folks are vaping with certain oils, for instance, that may be harmful. Discuss that theory. Yeah, here we get into much more of the theoretical, and I want to put up a big, big red flag that this all comes of the heading under the heading of we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So, so to to synthesize this answer just a little bit more, what what I think you're getting at is what could be the cause here, and th- there are multiple theories. One of them is that the oils that are mixed into the liquids people are inhaling are causing a, or some, sorry, forgive me, some of the oils or one of the constituents, one of the chemicals, one of the metabolites has somehow spread into the pipeline of vaping and is causing a massive inflammatory response in the system. The reason this is so hard to tease out is several fold. First of all, there can be multiple chemicals mixed in, and that is difficult toxology to do. Mm. The other reason is these are very disparate. I think you used that word earlier. It's around the country. It would be much easier if this were like a foodborne outbreak that happened in Denver to say we can trace it to this restaurant, but this thing is happening all over. That creates uh, a a mystery that's hard to solve. And my understanding is that the products that these folks may be using are really different, back to that disparate idea. So I think that uh, traditional e-cigarettes that contain nicotine have been connected to this, but like vaping cannabis products... So, for instance, in California, you see a release come out from the state saying most of these appear to be connected to THC. Um, but then you talk to some of the doctors involved and they say, I'm dealing with people who are very heavy 
users of traditional e-cigarettes mixing in THC or um, or leaving open the question whether it might be a combination. I think the government is being um, extremely cautious, if I had to guess, in sharing information because they don't want to send a message that one thing is dangerous and one thing is safe when they're not entirely sure yet. I realize, I fully realize this is extremely scary to people trying to make decisions about their health and their behavior. And all I can tell you is we're all over it. We want to know those answers, too, for our sake, your sake, parents' sake, family's sake, school's sake, and so forth. We, in this case, is uh, The New York Times. We're speaking with Matt Richtel. Uh, Over the weekend, he wrote The Mysterious Vaping Illness That's Becoming an Epidemic. And Matt, I think a part of this mystery is why this has cropped up now. I mean, you know, some of these products have been on the market for some time. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly lend to the theory that that a a product or ta- or or, or um, metabolite or chemical has snuck into the system. Right. Um, it it it, um, it. But it is not definitive yet. In part because of the disparate nature. For instance, how would a metabolite sneak in in New York and California? Somehow pass over Colorado largely relative to other states wind up heavy in Illinois. They're just they're just too many outstanding questions right now to answer that. But but to your core question, why now? It does suggest that this looks feels more like a foodborne outbreak. In other words, a kind of uh, toxin that got into the system than it does an indictment of the entire category. That you think it's a bit more specific. And the question is, what is that element that might be making people sick? You know, you keep uh, likening this to a foodborne illness. I think back to a listeria outbreak in Colorado several years ago. And uh, those who were sickened and survived were given these really long questionnaires. I mean, it asked all kinds of things about the food in their fridge and where they'd eaten and what they'd eaten. Can we expect that people who are suffering from this are being subject to 20 questions? Yeah, I think there's a ton of, uh, to use the fancy word, epidemiology, which is scientific dot connecting going on at a furious pace, led by the states in individual states and then probably um, uh, um, put together by the feds, the CDC and the FDA, trying to get at this. Can I just add the one um, common thread that is worth noting here that is easy to overlook? And that is the vulnerability of the lungs. At the middle of this whole debate is just how sensitive our lungs are to the inhalation of chemicals. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's quite clear to from from all the research on smoking and what everybody knows that will eventually kill you um but it's but your lungs are about the most exposed organ in your body you inhale and whatever you inhale is touching that soft pink exposed tissue of your lungs mm. so it is really worth noting for people that um, you you um, impose on them carefully, yeah. and that lesson should not be lost here. Thanks, Matt. That, that's, up- that's all the time we have, but I think it's a great caveat, that just just how vulnerable the, this part of our body is. Thanks, Matt. Thanks.
With the New York Times, again, he wrote the mysterious vaping illness that's becoming an epidemic. Two car bombings 45 years ago near CU Boulder remain unsolved. Six Chicano activists were killed. No one was ever charged. A new sculpture will be unveiled Friday that commemorates Los Seis de Boulder, the Boulder Six. One of its creators is CU Boulder art student Jasmine Bates. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. We're also joined by artist Selena Tovar. She's a recent CU Boulder graduate, and she collaborated on this piece. Selena, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. So six college students and recent graduates died in these 1974 car bombings. One was at Chautauqua Park, the other at 28th and Canyon Boulevard, less than 48 hours apart. Why don't we start with their names? Uh, Jasmine, you're going to read those for us. The first bombing, Neva Romero, Yuna Jacola, and Reyes Martinez died. And then, like you said, less than 48 hours later, Heriberto Tehran, Francisco Doherty, and Florencio Granado died. And Antonio Alcantar was also in that second car, and he was severely injured. He lost a leg in the explosion, so he's another victim of these bombings. Mm. I understand that you didn't learn about Los Seis de Boulder in class. You watched a documentary called Symbols of Resistance. What would Los Seis de Boulder and these other young people that died, what would their lives have been like? What contributions could they have made had they lived? The documentary is also about the larger Chicano rights movement, which is really important to understanding the story. We were pissed off that we were lied to, cheated out of our lands, that our families had gone through so much prejudice. We were angry, damn it, and we were going to make a change. And then in that process, we studied and organized and studied and organized. So, Jasmine, what was your first thought after watching the documentary? I was shocked. I was shocked that this history wouldn't be reflected somehow in the city of Boulder and in CU Boulder's campus, given how essential these students were to the civil rights and educational rights movement um, of the 1960s and 70s. Now, I'll say that, Selena, you're Chicana, and I understand that you've known about this history for some time. What did other students kind of make of this history when you would tell them about it? So I first learned of this history when I uh, joined Umas Umecha on CU Boulder's campus my freshman year. And tell us what that um, is. Umas Umecha is United Mexican American Students and Movimiento Estudiantil Chicanao, that's LAN. So it's two student orgs that came together on CU Boulder's campus. So Umas was actually created by some of Los Ace, the Boulder. So learning about this history through that club, but also speaking about it with other people in classes, it was a shock. Like no one knew that something so dramatic could have happened on campus at that time, right? We learn about the civil rights movement and we always sort of feel disattached from that because it didn't happen where we live. It didn't happen where we grew up or we don't know those people who were affected by some of these events. So having it be so close to home for a lot of people and and living in Boulder for four years for my undergrad and meeting people and telling them that this happened at a park that everyone loves to go hiking at, at 
a street that's super busy with different shops, it's just unbelievable to them that there's nothing to sort of commemorate this history. That's a reference to Chautauqua, of course. Uh, And this Chicano movement, you know, was very much led by young people. I mean, from the documentary, photographer and journalist Juan Espinoza remembers uh, the intense relationship at the time with university administration. They started messing with us. They were alarmed by how we were changing the culture of the university, and they started losing our financial aid applications, our files, the most vocal, the most, uh, the strongest advocates, the, the militants. The ones that were doing the, leading the demonstrations and all that, they were being targeted. It was their financial aid files that were being lost. And it was in the midst of all this tension that Los Seis de Boulder were killed. What, what do we know about the circumstances surrounding their deaths? You know, the circumstances are pretty murky and the crime was never resolved. And that's something that we've sat with in the course of doing this project. They were killed... We don't know how they were killed. The investigation was sloppy at best, and the FBI files that pertain to this situation uh, were destroyed in a fire. So we don't have access to those. Gosh, I imagine that's something that you really would have liked to get your hands on in putting this together, this sculpture. Sure would have, yeah. Yeah. Anything that you want to add about the circumstances that you've been able to glean, Selena? Well, I think it's always important to know that these these activists, they were students, right, on campus and, and former students, alum. But the fact that they were so committed to doing this type of work within Colorado, not just at CU Boulder, they were committed to bringing more Chicano, Latinx students Um, onto campus. And so I think it's important to highlight that their lives were lost simply for people like me in the future to continue to have access to this campus and to have access to education and for it to be affordable. Well, Jasmine, your sculpture includes all six of the student activists. And I understand the site here, something called Temporary Building One, And the direction the figures are facing are both really important. So help us understand that. Temporary Building One is actually one of the oldest buildings on CU Boulder campus. It's the second oldest after Old Main. And it's called Temporary Building One, but it is definitely, it remains a standing brick structure. And it's one of the most interesting buildings on campus. And in 1974, the UMass offices were located in temporary building one. And so the students were basically doing a sit-in, a protest um, at, as we call it, TB1. And they were protesting the cuts and restructuring that was happening to their educational opportunity program. And it was in this context that the two bombings happened, right? So we have these three sites. We have TB1 on campus. We have Chautauqua Park, where Yuna, Neva, and Reyes died. And then 28th Street, uh, where Eriberto Florencio and Francisco died. And so TB1 is sort of on an axis between the two bombing sites. So that's the way we oriented the sculpture. That's really powerful. 
Uh, can you describe what it looks like? It's comprised of these concrete panels, and together it forms, it creates a single form. It has six alcoves. Uh, within the six alcoves, we have these beautiful mosaics that were created by you know, hundreds of students and community members and folks who were interested. How do you feel when you look at it, Selena? I think definitely, like, the process of it all. Like, I worked on the mosaic pieces, I feel like, the most, and just sort of compiling that and now seeing it standing upright and sort of towering over me since it is six feet six or feet so. Tall. Yeah, six feet tall. And it's so impactful, right? Like you walk up to this super large concrete sculpture that doesn't fit any other sort of architecture or um, art object that you find on CU Boulder's campus. So it's sort of like a disruption in the space. And I think it's very powerful, the fact that it's sort of towering over the viewer. So you have to sort of look up into the space that it holds, um, as well as having the faces at eye level and sort of connecting with the portraits of Los Ace. Now, you mentioned that there was a survivor of the bombings, and of course there would be people who are related to the victims, those who died. Uh, How closely have any of them been involved in this? So it's a mix, right? So Antonio Alcantar, unfortunately, we haven't gotten to meet him. He passed away, I think, about two decades ago. And as for the the family members, some of them are fairly local, some in Colorado, a number of them in Texas. So we've had uh, varying amounts of of involvement from them. Uh, I mean, plenty of them came to the community days. There is... Um the sister of one of Los Seis, Yuna Jacola. I know that I got to know her pretty well, her and her husband. So just sort of meeting with them and, and speaking with them and just hearing that she sees her sister within some of these students and the fact that she sees the same values that her sister had in some of these students today. And I know that she told Jasmine that she reminds her a lot of her sister, so... You know, I think this is a temporary installation, but there is at least a hope of making it permanent. Do I have that right, Jasmine? Yeah, CU doesn't really have like a a clear pipeline for public art projects. Everyone's favorite joke is it will be as temporary as the building and (laughs) sounds good to me. Well, thanks to both of you for speaking with us. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Jasmine Bates is a CU Boulder art student. She designed a sculpture to honor six young Latinx activists who were killed in a car bombing in Boulder in 1974. Selena Tovar is a recent CU Boulder graduate who collaborated with Bates. Their memorial will be unveiled on campus Friday. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the first candidate to drop out of Colorado's U.S. Senate race. That's Democrat Mike Johnston. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? 
Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was sure to be a ripple effect when John Hickenlooper jumped in the pool to run for U.S. Senate. Well, on Tuesday, one of the bigger fish left. Mike Johnston ended his quest for the Democratic nomination and the chance to unseat Republican incumbent Cory Gardner. Previously, Johnston ran for governor. He used to serve in the state legislature. We're going to talk about how this went down, what he learned as well about the Democratic electorate this year campaigning. And Mike, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. After uh, Hickenlooper entered the race, a number of other candidates, including State Senator Angela Williams, said the contest would not become a coronation for Hickenlooper. But does your dropping out prove her wrong? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, for me, it was a much more simple decision, which is I looked forward and said, okay, what kind of campaign would we need to run? And I think at this case, it would have been a very expensive and a very negative campaign. And I think that's not who I am and that's not what I believe. And I couldn't lead a campaign that I thought gave up on the politics of what's possible for the politics of destruction. And I think that just increased the risk that we would, you know, have a bruised Democratic nominee who would come out and be more likely to lose in the general election to Cory Gardner. And the stakes are just too high to take that risk for okay. me. So some of this is money. Some of this is tone. In the last set of financial disclosures, you were leading in the fundraising. I mean, you had more than $2.6 million on hand as of the end of June. That was more than double anyone else in the race. Uh, when you withdrew, you said Hickenlooper's entry would make the primary race really expensive. I mean, more than $2.6 million expensive? Explain why that's the case. Oh, I think we would have spent 10 to $15 million against each other in a Democratic primary by the time next year was over. And and it would have been, I think it would have been, had to be a negative campaign. You'll see a why lot of- Why that? Help me understand that. So I think, that, I think it's a different race now. So, the, so two weeks ago, the race we were leading, which I think we were well positioned to win, was we were running a positive campaign about why Mike Johnston, what we could possibly do for the state and for the country. I think with John Hickenlooper in the race, it becomes a race about why not John Hickenlooper. Uh, and that's not the kind of campaign I want to lead. That's not the argument I'm interested in having because uh, I think that because of his name ID, he's so well known. That's the first question everyone gets. And so I think that's where you would have to go to win that kind of race. And I'm not willing to run that kind of campaign. OK, you began by saying that this is not a coronation of John Hickenlooper. And yet if the best funded candidate besides him drops out... How is it not a coronation? Well, I'm not, I mean, you know, Angela Williams, is, who's a friend, can speak for whether she thinks it is. Yeah. I can only speak for my own decision, which was, you know, I think there was a path for us to stay in and win, but it would have been a path I wouldn't have supported. I did not okay. want so to So there was off. a path, and you think paths exist for others. I, I think I, I think they will. I think most of those paths are going to be running negative campaigns. Uh, I think that is the path to beat someone like John Hickenlooper. That's not a path I would lead. Others may choose differently. But I think that's when someone that has 90-plus percent name ID in the state has been a two-term governor and a two-term mayor and a candidate for president. Uh, I think it requires a campaign to, to convince people not to support him anymore, and that's not a campaign I wanted to run. Do you think the Democratic Party handled this well? Is this the party's role? Well, I think the party is a very... 
complex and complicated group. There's a state party, there's a national party, there's a local party. I think people make their own individual decisions, and we expect that there will be there's so much attention on this seat. I mean, if you look nationally around the country, people will say, this is the most important Senate race in the country. So quite literally, the future of the U.S. Supreme Court, the future of any climate action, the future of any progress on guns, all of those rest on the Colorado Senate race. So I think people are right around the country to care because if we were to mess up this race, if we were to have a nasty Democratic primary and we were to wound our nominee enough that they lost to Cory Gardner, you could lose a generation of the Supreme Court over that battle. That's not a risk I was willing to take. Let me go back to this question. Do you think the Democratic Party handled this well? Well, so again, it depends on I mean, the talk, state party. Are you talking about the DSCC? Why, sure. Because the state yeah. party has stayed why, neutral. Why don't we talk about the, the so Democratic the, the Senatorial state... Campaign Committee? Let's talk about Chuck Schumer. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the higher ranking national Democrats clearly yeah. had a the, role here. Did they do well? The state Democratic Party has explicitly stayed neutral. And they will, I think, stay there. That's been their policy that's longstanding. And so I think they'll allow people to make a decision. Uh, you know, I think Chuck Schumer has an interest in winning back the U.S. Senate. And he backed who he thought the best candidate was. Uh, I that doesn't mean I agree with him, but I think that's his prerogative to do that. But it doesn't I think, mean. Do you agree with him? Well, I obviously thought I was the best candidate. Okay. That's why I was in the race. <laughs> what are you going to do with the money you have on hand? Let me let me ask a mechanical question. Can you give it to another candidate in this race? Um, we have not made any decisions about what to do, uh, and so I actually don't know what, all the legal parameters of what you can or can't do. We didn't make any of those decisions yesterday. We were just about yesterday was about talking to the tens of thousand supporters we have who have put their heart and soul into this to say we think the very same things that drew you to this campaign. Uh, the same reason I got into this campaign is the reason we're getting out, which is both we want to win this seat and we want to rebuild people's faith in politics. And we wanted to do both. I suppose that was a, a different way of asking whether you'll endorse someone else in the race. Are you prepared to do that? I did not make morning? any. I, I also didn't make any endorsement decisions yesterday. It was okay. a big enough decision for us to step out. That's all we got to yesterday. Who have you been impressed by? in the race on the campaign trail? Oh, I think it's uh, quite, I think it's, I've been impressed by almost everyone I've seen in the, in, the, in the race. And so I think it's a very strong pool of candidates. They all bring different histories and different visions for the state. But I think there is also a lot that that group of candidates agrees on. When we, when we do a candidate forum and talk about gun safety or talk about the climate crisis or talk about immigration reform, we are almost all aligned on most of those big issues. So I think a lot of very talented people who share a very core set of commitments, top of them is you got to beat Cory Gardner and you got to get Mitch McConnell out of the Senate Majority Leader's chair. Uh, were you frustrated by how John Hickenlooper talked about the role of a senator and whether he thought that he was even interested in the role? Uh, I think John was busy running for president for a year. And when you're running for that job, that's what you got to stay focused on. Um, I've obviously been a senator, so I believe deeply in what the role is and in the power of legislative change. And so I think John hasn't done that role. I think when he does, he'll find it's meaningful in a different way if, uh, if he's able to win. If he's able to win, do you think that he's the candidate now best positioned to win? Or do you think that's someone else? I do you think out of the is. race? You I do, do. I do think he is. What makes you say that? Is it simply the name recognition? Is it the kind of national nod? Uh, I think it's, no, I think it's, you know, people in Colorado know him very well. When you've, when you've been a two-term governor of Colorado and people have elected you twice and they thought that you led in a very strong economy, you have a good case to make. Uh, a lot of the things that I believed in and worked on, things like gun safety or climate efforts, John was a part of those, signed those bills. He'll have a record to run on. So I think he's a strong candidate. Uh, the last time that you were in our studio, you were a candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor. You finished second in that race, uh, losing out to current governor, Jared Polis. Uh, now this, 
Uh, Mike Johnston, you clearly want to be in politics, but does politics want you? <laughs> uh, that was what my seven-year-old daughter asked me. Um, really? So, uh, yeah, she said, well, she said, actually, Daddy, what's your job now? Which was the uh, first hard question. I, I think I have a future reporter in my family. Um, but yeah, I believe this is less about what you want to be than it is about what you want to change and what is the impact you want to make on the world and where do you try to make that impact? I think the major issues of our moment are global issues. There are things like the climate crisis. There are things like our democracy reform. Those require policy levers often to change them. But I think there are lots of ways to make the world a better place. I loved being a school teacher. I loved being a school principal. I loved running nonprofits. So I'm committed to the work. I think it don't, doesn't always matter what role you play on a team. It matters that you're on the team. And for me, I'm going to stay committed to this work for a long time. And what, what job I'll have doesn't matter as much to me as what the impact is, but I'll stay committed to the impact. Okay. So you didn't have a specific answer for her and you don't have one for us. What about running for Congress? The House? Uh, I have not made any of those <laughs> decisions okay. yet, uh, but I'll, I'll try to get through the, the first couple of days here, then pick up and look about what's next, but haven't made any decisions yet. Thank you for being with us. No, thank Mike. you so much for having me. And thank you for the important role you all play in making sure people are aware of races like this. Mike Johnston withdrew Tuesday from the race for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate, leaving 11 candidates vying to unseat Republican incumbent Cory Gardner. This is a race we will obviously be covering in depth in the months to come. A look now into the shadows and the light of professional cycling. A legend in the sport, Colorado's Jonathan Vodders, has a new memoir. It's called One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels. Starting with his entry as an undersized junior racer in Colorado, he worked his way to the top, riding in the famed Tour de France. He was also part of the rampant doping of the 1990s. And Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You say cycling is always heartache. Why? Well, it's a sport that more more wrong usually happens versus right. I mean, it's just so much easier for something to go wrong in a race. Um, you know, if you look at most sports, there's sort of team A versus team B. We got a 50% chance of winning. In cycling, there's 200 riders in a professional race. One guy gets to win. So your odds are a lot lower right off the bat. And then you throw into the equation flat tires, weather. We don't cancel races for snow or hailstorms or wind or rain or heat. Races are basically never canceled. You throw that into the equation. And then you throw in crashes and the races are three weeks long. So people are getting ill. Um, the body's under you know such an incredible stress day in, day out. So essentially... Whenever you're able to win a race, like if, if, a, if a rider, like most riders race about 100 times a year, yeah. and if they win five of those races, it's considered an incredibly successful season. So 95% of the time for, for an incredibly successful rider, one of the top riders in the world, 95% of the time they're losing. It sounds like an infuriating sport to dedicate a life to. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say infuriating. It's just you have to be willing to kind of sit down in the valley for a very long time, um, waiting for that one moment where you get to go all the way to the top of the peak. You write, I'm not really sure why I signed up for my first bike race. I had very little coordination, very small muscles, and was a good six inches shorter than the next smallest kid in my class. But what happened that first time you got on a bike? Well, <laughs> the first time I got on the bike, I, I, I got my butt kicked in my first race. I mean, I finished dead last. Um, but over time, 
for some reason it the sport of cycling was such a challenge to me and I, for some reason I just refused to give up on it and that you know that basically sort of drove the rest of my life if you will that that I am going to overcome insurmountable odds in order to be successful at this in order to um to eventually find a way to win you raced professionally in the 1990s and 2000s, and your first pro competition, I think, was that five-day race in Spain? Mm, yep, correct. Semana Catalana. The week of, yeah, the Catalan week. Yeah. Catalan week. Yep. How did you feel going into it? Well, going into the race, I thought I was going to, you know, win it and walk away. And I mean, this is the way, you know, professional athletes think. We all think we're the best in the world. And I thought I was going to be the best in the world. And, um... And it was kind of funny because that, you know, even though I'd progressed through the junior and amateur ranks and become one of the best amateur riders in the world by that point in time, upon turning professional, I was shot all the way back to that very first race in Colorado where all of a sudden I was the runt of the litter and, you know, and dead last once again. Let me have you read from the book. So just between those lines. Sure. Okay. All right. I was not going to be the first rider across the line like I had dreamed. Suddenly, I was back where I'd started, riding my bike as a 12-year-old all over again. I was the worst, suckiest, slowest, clumsiest bike rider in the pro peloton. I descended like a climber, and I climbed like an out-of-shape sprinter. Prompted by some vague sense of pride, I struggled on toward the finish, but I was embarrassed every time a different team car passed me to catch up to the riders that were still actually racing. I wanted to quit, just like I wanted to quit my first bike race. What was wrong at the time? Well, I mean, at that, in that particular race, there were a lot of things that were wrong. It was, uh, I was just, you know, I, I was not prepared for the speed and the intensity, and um, I was not prepared for the physical level of professional cycling at that point in time. I just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't there. I wasn't close. Is that because so many others were doping at that point? Well, it was getting to be that way. And in 1994, that was sort of like the start of the age of, of EPO, which was, you know, it's a drug that's incredibly, um, effective uh, at performance enhancing. And that was the start. At that, at that particular race, I just wasn't quite at the level yet. But as we get into 1995 and 1996, where doping becomes much more prevalent, I actually had built myself up to be, you know, at the level of professional cycling. But unfortunately, just as I was sort of building myself up to a higher level, um, you know, the doping had become such a large-scale endemic, culturally broad problem in the sport that... You know, you, it laughed anyone who was unwilling to, to make that leap pretty much in the dust. Gosh, just as you were coming into your own. We're speaking with Jonathan Vodders of Denver. His new book is One Way Ticket, a memoir, Nine Lives on Two Wheels. And you were racing when most top riders like Lance Armstrong were doping. You write that you knew doping wasn't ethical, that it endangered your health, and yet you doped as well. I guess the pressure to do so was too well, great. Well, you know, I don't know if it's pressure or if it's just, um, you know, almost that the cultural environment that you're in yep. at that point in time, um, it was not considered a bad thing to do. Um, the other writers in the Peloton spoke about it openly. 
team doctors, team management. It was spoken about openly. It was seen as sort of a very private um, way to get business done. And and I know that sounds really strange, but um, you know one of the the funniest things when people say, well, you know, is the pressure to do it and so on and so forth, and and, and sort of, but. You know, a lot of riders on other teams, when we weren't doping, would openly come up to me and say, why aren't you doping? Come on, man. Get with your, get with the program here. Like, you you know, you're a good rider. You've got talent, but like, you're never going to succeed like this. And you stop and think, wait a minute, why would another rider who's beating me all the time on another team who has a commercial interest in beating me all the time, why would yeah. they come up to me and, and, and try to convince me to dope? And that's where it's really interesting with professional athletes. And this is where people go a little bit wrong in what their perception of what doping is. Professional athletes all assume that they're the best. And I kind of alluded to that earlier. We all assume or, you know, that if the playing field is equal for everybody, then I'm going to be the best guy out there. So there was almost like a collective guilt in the entire peloton, entire group of that, that, that they wanted you to dope because... You know, they wanted to beat you fair and square. Like, I don't want to beat this guy just because he's not doing what I'm doing. I want to beat him fair and square. So if I'm doping, then he should be doping too. And so it it was a very, like I said, it was an effect of like a collective guilt of the entire Peloton. And by the way, yeah. the argument of that if everyone's doing it, it's an equal playing field is a completely garbage argument. It's, Why? It's, Why is that garbage? <laughs> well... I mean, it does strike me that it would just be as easy to say, everybody get off of the drug yeah. and compete on that level playing field. That's but- a better playing field. Yeah, that's a much... Be- well, the reason that it's a garbage argument is this, and, and I can only use a, an analogy for this, is imagine you and I go out and we take down you know, six shots of tequila for lunch, right? You wake up the next morning with a nasty, nasty hangover, and you take two aspirin. And your nasty, nasty hangover goes away. I wake up the next morning and take two aspirin and it doesn't even touch it. And we've all experienced this, right? Like one medication for you works really well. For me, it does nothing. And that's the same way all these performance-enhancing drugs work is that so all of a sudden the competition doesn't become about who's the best, who's the best trained, who has the best strategy, the best tactics, the Mm. best physiology, who nature intended to be the best of the best, who worked the hardest. All that is thrown out the window. All of a sudden it becomes more of a competition of whose body adapts to a certain pharmacology the best. So what was going through your head the first time you doped? Can you, what was the kind of still small Jiminy Cricket voice inside you saying? Well, you know, it, it was a lot more anticlimactic than you might think, because again, this had been a process of years of being pulled into this culture where it was just very acceptable mm-hmm. and very normal. And, you know, a lot of the euphemisms that were used were, well, you know, this is sports medicine. No, it's not doping. This is sports medicine. This is helping your body recover. This is keeping you healthy under extreme stress. Okay. So under that, sure, there was a voice in the back of my head saying, you know that sports medicine and keeping you healthy and all this other garbage is garbage. But when you're in a certain culture, I mean, it's cultural relativism at its best. You know, when you're in a certain culture for such a long period of time, you, you know, you, it, you just kind of slide into it. Okay, so here you are, you've trained, you're at the top of your game, you're also doping, and you race in the famed Tour de France, I think four times. Once you were knocked out by a wasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to show you how many things can go wrong. Right, exactly. We were talking Going about that earlier. Yeah. What happened with this wasp? Well, it was actually, uh, 
on the second rest day of the Tour de France, and we were just out for a little training ride just to keep the legs loose and open. Um, and, uh, yeah, and a wasp stung me right above my eye. And I didn't know it at the time, but apparently I have an allergy to wasp stings. Um, and so my one eye totally closed, swollen shut. The other eye was trying to be the same way. And there was a real simple solution for that. And the solution would have been to have taken a cortisone shot, right? But at this point in time, I was on a team that one was trying to clean up and was trying to brace, you know, doping free. And two, the rules in that point in time were a little bit ambiguous regarding cortisone and that like you could use it for a knee injury or asthma, but not an allergic reaction. And now that's changed. You can use it for an allergic reaction now, but at that point in time, it wasn't. And so my team manager, and this guy's like my hero in professional cycling because of this, um, my team manager came to me that, you know, the ER doc said, listen, we're going to give you a shot of cortisone. The swelling will go right down. You'll be able to race tomorrow. And my team manager said, well, no, we can't do that because it's prohibited, you know, for that, that, that would be doping to do that. And the doc said, no, 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 no. We'll just say it's a knee injury. We'll just write in the prescription. It's for a knee injury. And then it's totally clear to go. No problem. And I was sitting there going, yeah, easy enough, right? Every, everyone else is using cortisone right now just to go fast. And like, and all, all I want it to do is be able to see where I'm going. And this team manager said, no, that would be lying. And that's how cycling got itself in this predicament in the first place. And oh. it was an incredibly honorable thing to do. I hated him at that moment because I wasn't able to finish the Tour de France. He pulled away my dream by making that hard choice. But it was the right choice. You launched the Slipstream team, now known as EF Education First. Why did you start it, and did you think it had a chance despite bucking the doping odds? Well, you know, we didn't know at first whether or not we were going to be able to, to pull it off or not. I mean, it was very you know, hit or miss as to whether or not the team was going to be able to succeed. But luckily what we were able to do is, is almost create, and I hate to use marketing terms in this, but this is the reality is that we were able to create almost like a consumer preference in that we were so transparent with all of our anti-doping efforts and so transparent uh, regarding all the testing that we could basically, you know, we could prove that our athletes were clean within a certain margin of error, but we could okay. prove that publicly. And people at that point were so hungry just to know that the athlete they were cheering for was was clean, they were a little bit less concerned as to whether he finished first or 10th, just as long as they knew whatever that performance was, was real. But this is fascinating. This is a yeah. fascinating study for marketing students. Sure. You created a sports team for whom winning wasn't necessarily a priority. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Transparency transparency and a guarantee of the performance being real, that was what we were out there about. And the team only won, I don't know, four or five races that first year, but we were the most popular team in the world. And what that did, and this is where it gets real fun, is that all the other teams stood back and said, wait a minute, this team now is getting more fans, more sponsorship dollars, more publicity. They're the most popular team in the world and they won four races. How is that possible? Uh-huh. And then they started changing their ways, which started changing the way the entire sport and that culture that I talked about earlier, it really flipped that on its end. And so Jonathan Vodders, how do you think cycling is doing today when it comes to doping? Great. I mean, I think behind, and this is the funny thing is that in 1996, 
journalists, the, the public arena were not really focused on doping. Like it was like, it, that was not really an issue. And in 2019, publicly, it's a pretty big issue. But behind closed doors in 1996, it was horrible. It was a horrible situation for young athletes. In 2019, despite the fact that we still have to deal with some public controversies from our past, the reality is behind closed doors now, it's a wonderful situation for young athletes and a really great sport to be in. You're not saying there's no doping, but you're saying it's much better. Yeah. What I'm saying is... Right now, Alex Howes, who's a rider on our team, he's been racing with me since 2004, one of the original team members. He's currently U.S. professional national champion. Um, a great guy. He lives uh, in Netherland, Colorado. Um, and I would say Alex is someone who not only has he never doped, he's never encountered doping, he's never seen needles. It's never been part of his professional career whatsoever. He's going to have a great, successful 15-year career, and never will he have to face those choices. And that, to me, is is what it's all about. I want to wrap up with Mount Evans, <laughs> which has loomed large in your cycling career. It was the backdrop as you began and ended your pro career. I think the last race you yeah, were in yep, was on Mount yep. Evans. How, how did your relationship to that mountain change over time? We have about a minute. Well, I mean, it's my... It's my favorite mountain in the world. I mean, it's. I grew up looking at that mountain, coming out of my parents' house every morning as my dad would drive me to school. And you know, a racer in Colorado, the the most prestigious thing you can do as a racer growing up in Colorado is break the record up Mount Evans. And I chased that for years and years and years. And I won the race a bunch of times, but I never broke the record. And although I didn't like that at the time, I look back at that and go, you know, that's. I feel like that mountain is a little bit of it's. It's a it's a symbol of purity and cycling. And yeah, there was a period I doped in my career and in a way, like, I feel like I never deserved that record. Mm. And so I'm, I bookended my career with that mountain and, and I'm glad that that record is open for, for somebody else to go and break. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Former professional bicycle racer, Jonathan Vodders of Denver. We'll speak about his new memoir, One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels, tomorrow at the Rafa Clubhouse in Boulder. And that's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters on CPR News. Mm-hmm.